This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. If you and I were to strike up a conversation about autonomous vehicles or even robots, I presume we would primarily be talking about Teslas or something similar, or maybe some of the cool, new, and let's face it, kind of scary modern robots. So when I met Jeff Smith, I assumed that's where our conversation was going to go. It turns out Jeff builds these craft for Saab, and they're deployed in the oceans of the world, submarines, research vessels, drone ships. Jeff's vehicles can be deployed in the harshest environments on Earth, and their capability will blow your mind like they did mine. Join us for an excellent conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Jeff, welcome to the QTS Experience. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. I've got to ask the first question that anybody who's not listening to this but watching this, I like that background. Are you actually underwater right now? Is that the special effect? <laughs> I'm, in a, looks... I'm in an unusual hotel in Denver that's got a slanted glass ceiling, so the, the uh, sun's kind of coming through the shades that I have mostly closed. You know what? I, I, one, I'm going to honor the fact that you're very um, truthful, but you could have had so much fun with that. No, I'm about, as I'm it turns out. I'm off the Florida Keys in an undersea habitat. <laughs> At 1,500 feet underwater, we're about to make Ernest, this big discovery. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show. This is going to be a great conversation. Before we go too much further and dive into the technology that I'm fascinated with, I've got to ask the first question that I know everybody's thinking. Um, if they if they are of old, older than 35 years old, they're Saab? Like Swedish Saab, S-A-A-B, Saab? Saab's involved in this technology? Be because it seems to me they're in a company that every, I don't know, decade or whatever, unless you're really close to the industries that they work in, seems like they're they have a culture of continuous innovation and rejuvenation, and they come back into the public mind. I had no idea they were even in the spaces that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. How, how do they maintain that culture? How do they stay so relevant? What's a little bit about their history? Um, so their history is they started in the 30s as an airplane company. Um, you know, Saab during World War II did not want to, or Sweden actually, did not want to be dependent on any other nation for their defense. So they started Saab as a Swedish aerospace, AB, AB is sort of like ink there. So it's, you know, that's really the, the acronym that became the company uh, name. Um, they started making uh, uh, jet fighters for many, many years. They still do. Um, and then they really, when you look at them in Sweden, they are the defense industrial base for Sweden. I mean, they they make all the submarines, they make all the surface ships, radar systems, shoulder fired weapons. Um, you know, you, you, it's really hard to, to pick a, you know, a military, uh, you know, component vertical yeah yeah that isn't that isn't manufactured by Saab in Sweden um in the last um you know decade or so they've started to really expand and look at outside countries and establishing um you know operational countries like the US um Australia UK Germany are their their four primaries right now so about wow. 10 years ago they uh, they bought a radar company in the US and that really became uh Saab Inc Saab USA it 
it is, I, my first exposure to them uh, were they had these really funky, cool cars in the 80s uh, that I, I love. I never owned one. <laughs> <laughs> Dating myself. I just remember being uh, uh, at my um, the military base I was at uh, down at Fort Benning, Georgia, and uh, seeing these cool cars. And the people that were driving them had spent time in Europe and come back, and they uh, you know, it just seemed like um, so different than anything else. And then uh, I think GM bought him up and, you know, it didn't didn't go well. But uh, yeah, GM if, bought him in, I think, the nine, 93 or so and then bankrupted him around 2006. But yeah, you, know, you still have people that love those cars. Whenever I say Saab, it's, you know, typical civilians are like, well, you know, oh, you're you're the car company still around. I yeah. love those cars. Yeah. The, I think well, they were the so unique. Had them. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's El funny. Aspen, one of one of the Colorado ski ski mountain police. Yeah, yeah, figures. Well, they were amazing cars. I I never owned one, but they were beautiful. They were so different it, um, to all the other vehicles. And usually, not or I should say it differently. Not always does a different, in particular, European car mean reliability and safe and whatever. Probably the closest people would think of is a Volvo was you know readily available. Uh, these cars were amazing. I mean, their owners loved them, and uh, they were certainly unique. You either anybody who experienced them either really, really liked the way they looked, or they really, really didn't. Yep. Yeah, they are pretty cool. So how how do you you don't sound Swedish? So you've either really gotten good with the uh, dialect, the British or the English dialect. How did you end up at uh, Saab? Um, <laughs> had a very long career where I can't, haven't been able to hold a job that long these last couple of years. Um, <laughs> so I started uh, 30 years ago working for uh, General Dynamics. Uh, mostly my entire career has been really focused on submarine systems and subsea. Um, about 15 years ago, I went to a company called Bluefin Robotics that was one of the leading unmanned undersea vehicle companies in the U.S. Uh, they were later acquired by General Dynamics. Um, but before GD came in, I, um, I broke out of that. I started my own uh, unmanned undersea vehicle company out of my kitchen on my credit card uh, about six years ago. I mm -hmm. sold them uh, three years ago now to uh, uh, BAE Systems, a British company um, operated out of the U.S. as well. Mm -hmm. um, I was leaving BAE. I was looking to start something new and Saab started calling and, uh, you know, it was really, you know, it's, it's the best job I ever had. And it's, uh, you know, I worked for myself for about five years or so. So right. uh, they hired me to stand up a U.S. division focused on the undersea vehicles where we really take, you know, leverage what we can from Sweden and their technology transition it over here for U.S. military and commercial needs as, as necessary and uh, you know, build build them here. Really, kind of Americanize the systems, build them custom for what the U.S. Navy is looking for as a U.S. supplier, and um, you know, basically stand up a division and grow. Why we're going to talk about, among other things, autonomous vehicles and um, underwater autonomous vehicles, and or, or above water for that matter, maritime vehicles and robots. Well, I'm curious. Why would that be an area that would be interested to you or to them? Uh, in particular, in this way, it feels like you've just introduced not just the complexities of the technology around autonomous vehicles and robotics, which we've had a lot of people on that are working with those things for space, for everything from cattle herding to... Um, exploration and all these other things. And there's a lot of complexity there. Mm -hmm. 
Now, now you add in um, arguably equal to or greater challenge than space going into the depths of the ocean. I'd argue um, greater. <laughs> I would. Well, I mean, a lot of people would. Yeah, I had uh, James Garvin on, uh, one of the chief scientists at NASA, and he said, "Look, there's this really interesting overlap between um, the the navigation tools that the underwater people are developing to help us learn how to navigate once we get to a celestial body." Because they are having to figure out all the complexities of doing things where human beings and radio isn't and all of these other uh, pressure and you know, just we're going to talk about it more on the thing. But all of this complexity that's much different than doing it in the air or above ground where humans breathe or where we can see and we can shoot um, communication technology to. So why would they want to – why would you and why would they – want to take on the complexity were you in it, in it um you're talking about your backgrounds in submarine and and um and some of this technology were you in it before you realized how hard it was and is it too late to get out or why would you guys get involved in this so me personally i mean i've always been i've been a scuba diver for the bulk of my adult life um 30 plus years now I love the ocean. Um, you know, the lot of the, you know, I, I grew up in the seventies watching Jacques Cousteau every week. Oh yeah. It was, that was like the the dream. And it, you know, my wife is angry at me cause it's kind of still is mine. I'm like, <laughs> we're going treasure hunting when I retire. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but, um, That's hilarious. The, um, the, and maybe before I retire, but yeah. <laughs> no, the, um, I mean, the challenges are, they, they really are incredible when you kind of take a step back and look, you know, sp space, I I got my early career at General Dynamics working the Trident II inertial navigation system for the submarine launched uh, nuclear ballistic missiles. And, mm -hmm. you know, those went exoatmospheric, the, you know, you're talking GPS denied navigation on those systems, uh, star trackers, uh, very harsh environment, you know, the vacuum of space, temperature extremes, all that. Um, undersea, the technology challenges are, you know, are, in my opinion, a lot, a lot more, right? You don't have GPS, you don't have radio communications, you don't have uh, line of sight communications, right? Typically, you know, really good water, you can see about 100 feet in. Um, you know, the pressure, at, you know, the bottom of the ocean, you're talking, you know, vehicles, I've made vehicles to 6,000 meters deep, that's like taking a, uh, you know, a, a Tahoe or expedition and and putting it on your thumbnail, right? It's mm. ten thousand pounds per square inch. It's a massive amount of of pressure. Um, and then you know the the other side of it too is you're looking at you know water's eight hundred times more dense than air. So you know drag is a factor of the medium you're in. So you know it, it takes a lot of energy to push push vehicles around in that space. I and mean, that's why the U.S.'s submarine force is nuclear. Right. So why would Saab want to get involved in something like that? It feels like there's a lot of opportunity to be successful without, so without, do they spin the wheel and say, what is the hardest thing we can do within this atmosphere? Hey, let's go under it and go do this. Well, from a Saab perspective, I mean, they, they're, you know, in the Baltic, they've had several brush-ups over the last many decades with Russia, you know, Russian submarines up on their beaches, on the rocks, um, Russians in the 50s shooting down some of their planes. I mean, oh, I didn't know that. It's, it's, uh, there's a couple things that really stand hmm. out and people. Not the Russians, come on. <laughs> 
So the Baltic is really, you know, it's it's them on one side, Russia on the other. Finland's in there too, obviously, right? It's, uh, and some others, but it's right. uh, you know they really need to have a you know an indigenous capability to you know prevent mines in their waters and keep keep the ports safe and that. And um, so you know, as as Sweden, you know, needing those capabilities militarily, they you know they turn to Saab because that's their technology development company how what's the scale of the vehicles we're talking about so as you describe um you know the resistance and we'll talk about energy in a minute because i'm fat i'm i've been thinking about energy so often lately the things that are going on in europe right now that um uh nato and european countries are paying the price for not having more energy independence um they're they're just uh, in a number of ways I'm, i'm thinking about energy but are we talking really, really big vehicles, really, really small vehicles? How, what's the scale of what we're looking at? So as, you know, from a product line perspective, Saab has the really a broad, broad gambit of sizes of vehicles. When you go to the mm-hmm. U.S. Navy, the U.S. Navy years back had uh, four categories, man portable, lightweight, heavyweight, and um, large. And heavyweight is basically a 21 inch, 3000 pound vehicle, you know, same as a heavyweight torpedo, right? Okay. Um, and the Navy really did model a lot of their, their vehicle requirements, US Navy around the submarine tube interfaces. Um, but in the last uh, three or four years, the Navy's kind of recategorized and it's now, you know, they've kind of gone with the, the happy meal with, you know, small, medium, large, extra large. <laughs> so the smallest vehicles that are out there are about three inches in diameter. Um, the smallest one I've made, uh, I made some countermeasures are three inches, but um, uh, as Riptide, we were making what we called micro UVs or less than five inches in diameter, 20 pounds. Uh, they could run for, you know, hours to days, depending on how you'd, how you'd outfit them, what you'd use for power. The biggest vehicle out there today is uh, made by Boeing, it's called X, the extra large UV. Um, it's a, uh, I've stood in the, stood in the payload bay. It's, it's nine feet roughly in diameter and can be up to 80 feet long. It's a, it's a, it's a submarine. What would be the uses for those things? Um, so every kind of class and size of vehicle has sort of a different mission area. So when you look at like something like Boeing's vehicle, um, right. that's really intended for payload delivery that can carry just gobs and gobs of stuff forward, go very long distances. Um, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things I probably can't get into with what it can deliver. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, when, when you go down to the smallest vehicles, you know, uh, I know you probably worked with EOD guys in the past, those guys, you know, you know, want to backpack to a beach, throw a vehicle in and, and chart the surf zone to make sure there's nothing there. Right. Um, Well, the reason why I ask is, um, no, we're not going to go down any conspiracy rabbit holes at all. So, it, and and I and I can do it easily. So don't lead me. Um, we'll be we'll be halfway down before I know what's going on. But um, there, I I recently saw a movie. Then had a conversation with a um, a former DARPA guy, and and a um, and doesn't seem like it's related, but related a professor out of Emory who was on here not long ago talking about uh, ethics. But his co-world is... You're going um, down the killer robots path. Yeah, no, well, <laughs> kind of, kind of, but, but not so much killer robots. But his other is in biotech. Mm-hmm. 
and the guy from memory, and he talks about, look, here's what we've done with, for example, eels. We, we've taken some of these eels, their brain out. We've put them, we've, susten- we've suspended them in this um, nutrient. We've done enough genetic work and mapping of the brain that without a body, the eel suspended in basically a little mini robot. This is on YouTube and other places. Um, so obviously it's trustworthy. But I believe him <laughs> as he's talking to me. And they can... They can maneuver themselves around. So we're hoping he, that uh, Dr. Wolpe will come back on the show and talk more about biotech than just the ethics. But his point is, is that this is technology that's eight years old or 10 years old at the time he was uh, talking about these things. And so we've got the ability above ground, uh, whether it's in a theater of war and other places, to take really small tech and listen or observe or um, – Whatever, whatever things they can do. And so not necessarily delivering a payload, although I'm sure that's a potential, um, but it is, uh, it's, it's able to do these different missions. And I, all of the conversation, and this was sort of off the record conversation that we had and that I was familiar with, was, was less commercial and more military or scientific, not so much a commercial idea, what would we do with this? But I'm wondering with a five-inch or a, like one of these little mini guys, like a big guy, I could see why you can deliver payload to a rescue situation. You could deliver payload in a military situation. Like Here are a number of ways you could do it. But with one of these little micros, I'm curious, how do they – I've seen sea turtles in the surf on Jacques Cousteau. They, you know, the little baby ones, they get battered all over the place. So how do these little guys operate and what would be a role for them – um, in that environment that makes sense, whether it's commercial, military, or whatever? There's been a lot of attempts at like surf zone vehicles, and, and that is a really, really challenging environment. Um, a lot of the cases with the vehicles, you know, the torpedo-shaped vehicles that we typically have, you know, they can swim parallel to the beach with a sonar that reaches in pretty well. You get a lot of turbulence there, so it, it really, you know, it takes a lot of tuning of the sonar to, to work there. But the other side of it is you have, you know, uh, accelerometers, IMUs on the vehicles where they can, uh, you know, sense a wave, for instance, coming, and they can, you know, do a behavior, enable a behavior that it, you know, tries to do a sort of a wave avoidance as that swell starts right. to try to roll it. Right. They don't look for sharks. I mean, if I'm doing the surf zone, I'm looking for, <laughs> I'm looking for carbon-based there's a uh, vehicles that could do damage. There's uh there was a, a video out of YouTube video out of Woods Hole years back that got a lot of attention where, you know, they put an acoustic transponder on a great white off of Cape Cod and they followed it around and eventually it kind of, you know, upset the shark a little bit. So the shark came back and attacked it, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's a really good video. If you, sh- if you search uh undersea drone, great white attack, you'll probably see a, you know, oh, entertaining. Wow. Yeah, I know. I would want one, even if it's one of the little mini ones. To, I wanted to, uh, you know, cast a holograph of an orca, and an orca mama with its baby saying no great whites. Because I've seen those videos or or some of the documentaries on those things. That when um, I don't know if it's all sharks, but great whites in particular off of Santa Barbara and um, the Channel Islands, and they've seen pods of orcas come through. And when the great whites determine or realize that orcas are in the area. Even if it's their feeding time, even if it's mating time, even in whatever the different season is, they get the heck out of town because they'd want nothing to do with that uh, pod. So maybe I have a little rascal out there 
telling, uh, which would be fine unless a male orca, I suppose, comes along and says, hey, date night, you know, <laughs> they're flipping through their Tinder and they show up. But it's it, so they're just looking for in the surf zone stuff. They're just looking for um, like like motion of the waves and the whatever to help warn them. It's less about the marine life in the area. So I mean, they're, the vehicles are dual use, right? So on the military side, they're looking for typically clearing a path to the beach for the Marines. On right. The, you know, on the scientific side, it's you know how deep's the water, what's the current doing, what's the turbidity, you know, what's right. the what are some of the environmental factors that are, you know, and then the, you know, they're doing eDNA sensors now to see what sea life. What's is eDNA? Uh, environmental DNA, where they can oh, okay. water sample determine, you know, every fish that swam through it in the last decade or something. It's really, <laughs> it, it's you, uh, you know, it's amazing what you get in a small drop of water and how much stuff is left in that. Yeah, that's fascinating to to imagine. Um, you know, I, I've said this on my show before, but Albert Einstein, I'm sure I'm going to get the quote wrong, but it was at the world's fair in the thirties. There was a recording. I can't find it on YouTube anymore, but I, it was somewhere, but basically what he said was modern man imagines they're so sophisticated because of their tools. Keep in mind, there's almost a hundred years ago, um, because they, uh, but he said, I would challenge that they have difficulty feeding themselves. They have difficulty, uh, clothing themselves, they have de difficulty healing themselves. We rely on these tools. This is a hundred years ago, and so I, I just say that to say um, I work with and spend a lot of time with academics who I love very much. But it's it's there's a thing you have to we have to guard ourselves against as human beings. Um, sort of the certainty that we got this figured out. Like we've, we've got the science around us figured out. We are certain, um, like we're, we're certain it's the law of gravity. I, I agree. We're certain with so, so many of these things. But to your point earlier about talking about many times the ocean is much harder and much more unknown than space, for example, at least the near celestial bodies, there's so much we just don't no. And so when we go along with this little machine sampling the ocean and getting the DNA out of it and giving us that data, if we're not careful, we walk around with a certain amount of arrogance thing. Ah, we got this thing figured out until we don't, until the ocean does something different, right? One could argue that what ancient man was most afraid of was not God or the gods or the things in the sky, but it was the depths of the ocean, because it's so mysterious and unknown. And even to this day, it's pretty harrowing. Well, I mean, we look, typically our sensors look through a soda straw at the ocean at a very finite moment of time, right? It's not, right. we're not constantly monitoring, looking. And, you know, you go back, um, when I was with Bluefin, we were involved with the MH370 search when the Malaysian air flight went missing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So we sent, we had a 21 inch vehicle that was uh, capable of diving to 4,500 meters deep, right? Almost, you know, almost three miles. And um, it was in the neighborhood for U.S. Navy operation. U.S. Navy deployed it immediately. We had uh, guys I worked with were on the boat. And um, when they, they got sort of the original indication where they thought the plane went down, they said, you, you know, it's 4,500 meters deep. The vehicle's 4,500 meters. All good. Get the vehicle there and start searching. And the first dive of the vehicle it aborted because the water depth was uh, over the, well, it was 5,000 meters deep. Right. So they were about 10% off of the depth of the ocean. <laughs> How, 
Yeah. How were we off so much? Was it that the tool we used to measure it wasn't accurate enough or was it we just guessed? So in a lot, we're, I mean, one, you're talking that, you know, thousand miles west of uh, Perth, Australia is one of the pretty remotest places in the world. Not a lot of ship traffic that goes right. through there. But Some would argue Perth is probably also one of the remotest <laughs> places. <laughs> but I think the, the last guy Perth. that took an accurate measurement there was probably Cook with a rock and a rope. I mean, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we do all this stuff with satellite and it's, 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 doesn't really have the accuracy for the penetrations. And it's like, you know, it's generalizations, right? We're looking right. at, you know, areas the size of states when, you know, we're, you know, we're trying to get down to, you know, right. you look at Google Earth, you know, Google Earth is, you know, meter accuracy, more or less visually on, on everything above water, below water, right. it's, you know, you couldn't see, you know, Manhattan if it was at the bottom of the ocean with the, with the accuracy of the right map. Okay, so what they... Better. What do they do in that particular instance? Do they just do they get different vehicles? Are there vehicles that could go that deep? Or so uh, so what they did was um, they brought out one of the um, uh, Australian bathymetric ships to do a more uh, higher resolution you know new survey to get better data on what was there, um, and then the uh, the Navy came back to us when I was still at Bluefin and said you know how much margin does your design have? And you know we had a good amount of margin on the vehicle, so we were able to. Um, push the vehicle to uh, 5,000 meters. It went a little over 5,000 meters with the um, the company that was operating it. Um, right. we, we we removed the warranty, as I recall, and said, it'll go to five. Right. <laughs> Did you ever see the movie Apollo 13? Yes. So there's the, the, I love that movie. I, you know, side note, I called my dad after I saw it. I saw it in the theater. I was like one of eight people. It was, you know, dollar theater. I was cheap. And that first scene when the USA goes by and I'm just super stoked. My dad was on shuttle for 20-something years and stationed for uh, 10 or 12 years, whatever it was. Anyway, I called him up and said, this is unbelievable. And this astronaut named Jim Lovell. And he said, you know, Jim Lovell lives like eight houses down here in the NASA <laughs> area. Never knew. Yeah, he looks like a retired accountant. But anyway, he um, there's that scene where they come to the the lunar lander. And they're like, hey, you know, can our guys survive in there? And the guy's like, I don't know. It wasn't designed for that. It's not, you know, I can't make any promises. You know, and he's completely disavowed. You know, I'm removing the warranty. And when, and then it survives it and it delivers. He's like, yeah, we knew it could do it. <laughs> like all great engineers everywhere, you know. Um, you're terrified if you take it outside the margins. But so often when smart people design something, it, it exceeds it. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of history around great uh, test pilots uh, in our family. We've got to know a number of them over the years. Um, some of them, unfortunately, paid the ultimate sacrifice. But these these people, men and women, just have this, they're always wanting to push the mark. I mean, it's just in their nature, not unsafely, not blind faith. I mean, it's a calculated risk, but it's a risk nonetheless. And so it's pretty interesting. Well, sooner or later, it, it's going to fail, right? And if, and right. especially when you start looking at like, you know, cyclic fatigue, where you're diving a vehicle, you know, to depth every time, you know, it gets to a point where you really need to have a margin on there, margin slash factor of safety to to be able to operate the vehicle over the course of its life. If you right. push it past that, you know, bad things can definitely happen. Right. Now, if you're down at 4,500 or 5,000 feet, let Meters. How do you communicate? Uh, meters, I'm sorry, meters. Yeah, even even more. <laughs> um, 
How do you communicate with something like that? Because I've I've seen in my preparation for this um, conversation, um, I've seen them where they've got the tether. You know, they've got a, a, a cable of some sort. Sometimes. Which, sometimes, right? So this is one type where I've seen them go out and they are, right, they're they, on the one hand, they can communicate usually a lot of information, but it's on a leash. There's only so far the leash can go, and you inherit all of the complexity of having this leash or tether or whatever it is, or without the tether. And then um, some of the machines, it seems like they they just know they're going to go run a routine, and then they come back. There's not a lot of communication. They're just going to go do their routine, and they come back. And others, there's some form of communicating. I'm wondering, how do you, I don't know enough about it, can you help us to understand how do I have a conversation with these things while they're doing their mission? So, I'm, frankly, sometimes you don't, right? If depending yeah. on the type of vehicle and what you're doing, you know, it's throw it in, hope it works and hope it comes back where it does. In some cases, you know, they're expendable even, you're, you know, you send it with some some faith, you know, there's things right. that you can do to to get some signal from it when it's executed as mission, things like that. You know, the tether, you know, um, there's a guy by the name of Jim McFarland. He's a he's a legend in this community, um, you know, started a company early 60s, <clears throat> MIT, um, International Submarine Engineering, I believe, up in Canada. Uh, ISE, I always know, have known it as, but, you know, Jim is, um, he's developed you know, he's, he's forgotten more about this space than I've learned in 30 years. And, uh, you know, he had a great quote that I always remember, which is, you know, the greatest advantage of an ROV's uh, remotely operated vehicle is it's tethered. Mm -hmm. The greatest disadvantage of an ROV is it's tethered. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's one of those things where you have a link and live comms to it. And that's great. The downside of that is, especially if you're going deep, typically with an ROV, you're powering over the tether. So you're talking, you know, I've, I've put deep ROV systems out there that have had, you know, inch and a half diameter, you know, it's, what is that? It's probably like 10 pounds a foot for the cable. Well, now wow. you have to have, you know, 10,000 feet of that cable. You're looking at, you know, I, I worked one traction winch that I think it was um, something like 80 tons, I think. And, you know, that yeah. can only go on a certain ship. And right. that's, you know, the vehicle that that's sort of working isn't that big, right? It's not, the vehicle's probably only, you know, 20,000 pounds or so, but it's right. that tether just weighs so much, the drag of the tether and, you know, and you have to have so much power to pull the tether around once you're down there. Plus the impact of the current or whatever else I've got to believe just can... The good yeah. news with current is it's usually only at the, you know, it's usually stratified. It's usually at the upper levels. It's not, once you start getting deep, you usually don't get it, but you can. Okay. It depends right. where you are, what's happening. But Yeah. I mean, when you're describing that weight of something like that, it, it almost reminds me of the um, the big sea cable ships that are running yeah. the transatlantic yep. um, sea and the, cables and the sea plows that actually bury those in some places yeah. I've done some work with those in the past it's, you know it's um it's a there's so much technology there but it's you know if you have a if you have a cable to it you know great you can talk to it but if you don't it's you know you're you know you look at you know these little micro uvs like i was talking and even the mm -hmm. bigger ones the the things that those things can do without you know a massive ship behind it you know, that's really enabling for a lot of things with the Navy and with commercial jobs and things like that. 
Um, you know, you look at um, our uh, UK subsidiary, SobCI, they, they're one of the leading ROV companies in the world. Uh, they just got tapped by um, Ocean Infinity for the Armada system. And what that is, is it's an unmanned surface vehicle. It's a pretty large unmanned surface vehicle, but not nearly as big as it would be if it was crewed. And then it has a uh, very large uh, work-class ROV on it, you know, 10,000-pound-like vehicle, you know, big, thick cable powering it to do lots of deep-sea So inspection. when you say 10,000-pound, what it help us to give a – is that an 8 by 8 cube? Is it – what would that be in, in size? Like a car – a station wagon is what, 4,500 pounds? Yeah, I mean, it's car size. And, and so Saab – so a lot of the legacy ROVs – are um, they're really um, hydraulic based. So there's a lot of big motors, heavy hydraulics. So Saab is really pushed to be the sort of the all electric vehicle. So right. that is sort of our biggest ROV, if you can. Wow, yeah. There's a guy standing in front of it, but yeah. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, That's I mean, and that doesn't have the work tray under it and some other things that go with it, but it's... Right. Those vehicles can get quite large. They, uh, you know, they're they're doing um, active work in the oil and gas field down at, at significant depths, turning valves, you know, plugging right. systems in, power, you know, connectorizing undersea systems for, right. for uh, you know, offshore energy. I saw somebody, or we had a guest on not long ago, was talking about um, a little bit about navigation, and one of the things that he touched on was. Um, this idea of robots doing cleaning in shipyards for the Navy. And that's an area they're really trying to, um, you know, if it's, uh, if it's simple, but dangerous, um, how do we replace people from going into that with machines where we can, um, uh, the complexity, you know, you don't have to have a massive artificial intelligence program to do these things that you can, you can sandbox out these parameters and it can do its job. And I said, well, that sounds pretty easy. And he started chuckling. He said, yeah, until you put it in the water and it just doesn't do anything. And you wonder, why isn't this thing doing anything? And then you realize because every simulation we ever did, we ran it with a white background and now it's in a different background and it doesn't know what to do. Right. And so um, he started chuckling. He's like, you know, there's all this narrow AI. And we've heard many people talk about narrow AI is a thing that's here and now and making spectacular, sometimes scary strides. But this general artificial intelligence of iRobot, probably a significant uh, time away because there's just so many things that the human brain, from the moment we begin to ingest inputs outside the womb, even without being taught, is teaching itself that a machine just... Um, it's, it's much more complicated than we imagine, but they're talking about using these things. And that reminds me of that, whether it's oil and gas or cleaning ships or whatever, how do I tell this, take this machine and have it go do something at a depth that would be very difficult for human beings without fear, with accuracy, with strength to uh, get a job done? I'm just wondering, though, how, besides the tethered, have we given up on communicating at depth? Is that is that just an obstacle that is um, so significant that it's so we're not we sure a, where to go with it? So we have acoustic communications to most of the vehicles that go out there. And so the, the problem with the acoustic comms is, you know, you, the standard commercial acoustic comms is less bandwidth than your 1970s phone modem, right? It's, it's oh, 
Wow. <laughs> it's it's Morse code, right? It's, it's, yeah, telegraph is what you say. <laughs> but there are there are, you know, there the technology is definitely moving. There's there's obviously limitations to physics, but there are some guys out there now with, you know, doing some things multi-channel where they're pushing streaming video over, you know, hundred meters or so. Um, and that's, you know, that's amazing, right? You, you didn't have that a decade or two ago. And right. um, so, but it's getting better, but there's still ultimately a limitation and, you know, uh, getting a signal, you can get a signal to go, you know, the good thing about water is an acoustic signal can travel a long, long way, but right. it doesn't, you know, in air, you know, radio frequency pretty much, you know, goes straight, doesn't get obstructed right. underwater. Um, acoustic signals don't, they, you know, they follow the temperature of the water, they bounce off the bottom. It's, it just turns into a mess of what it is and it doesn't maintain its coherence. Right. So you can get a, you know, a note or something that goes thousands of miles, but you're not going to get a message. Right. Well, it sounds like almost McFarland's quote again, right? The great news about acoustics in the ocean is the water. The problem is the water, you know, the, um, I would also imagine that it is, unless there's a way to encrypt it, you know, with air, you can get a really tight beam where, you know, and there's a hundred different technologies you can use to do that. With acoustics, I would imagine it's probably a challenge to shape it so that the only, the only thing that's going to receive this is this particular vehicle. And so something in the area, whether it's just a passive listening device. Um, I did see Hunt for Red October, so I, I know a little <laughs> bit of this terminology. But, you know, just the things that listen, they're not necessarily active. And so uh, it would be like walking through the forest calling out. I may not understand the language, but I know somebody's calling out or, you know, a challenge and a response or something's going on. Yeah, you can. There's ways. I mean, there's omnidirectional, obviously, but there's ways to beam steer and, and push energy in a particular direction. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of the, you know, the commercial above water side. And, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, there's so much technology and capability and so many end users at the end of the day. Right. I mean, what's right. on your phone right now? Tremendous camera, you know, IR um you know, sensors going out, sensing distance, right? Which right. similar to your car bumpers now, which right. you know have all those everywhere. I mean, those things are made in such quantity that they're they're dirt cheap. The problem with underwater is the they're you know most of those things aren't meant for underwater. So you know, where a camera you can get for you know tens of dollars easily now above right. the water. You're looking at you know an average underwater camera sealed for ten thousand psi is you know it's tens of thousands of dollars if not a hundred. Yeah, I um, it's not uncommon for me. My wife rolls her eyes as I'm getting older that I bring my my phone is in this quote unquote waterproof, uh, which really is just probably I don't know five meters, ten meters, but it's not uncommon that I take it to the sh in the shower with me where I'm listening to a podcast or a fill in the blank a, a talk show, a sermon, a something. I'm listening to a conversation that's interesting to me. And um, I turn the volume down. I got the acoustics there, the showers. I'm listening to it, and it gets a little wet. And it's no big deal. Wouldn't even thought about an electronic like that. Maybe your watch, but nothing else really. Ten years ago, like that. And now to try to take the ridiculous capability of this thing, and to even take it 250 meters. So my wife and I, in fact, we're going diving in two weeks down to see the grouper off of Jupiter uh, Beach in Jupiter, Florida. We got certified about 30 years ago. Then we had 
these knuckleheads we call kids that are draining our finances. <laughs> um, they're older now, and so we've uh, um, we will be married 36 years in February. So we're rediscovering some of these things that we really love to do. And one of the things Congrats. our knees don't let us. Thank you. Our knees don't let us ski like we used to. Um, that and having a challenge pushing away from the buffet, but at least for me, <laughs> not for her. But um, water is our element. And we, and we don't go particularly deep. We can see pretty much anything we want to see. We're not really wreck divers or cave divers. We love the colors and the um, the life of things that live at 60 feet plus, generally speaking. We'll go a little bit deeper. Sometimes we did some freshwater springs down in Florida not long ago. We've been to the Caribbean. Um, but even then, even then, the, the devices that say they're waterproof, um, for our friends who do dive down at 120, 150 feet, um, one, on the one hand, it's remarkable the technology with dive computers today and inter- integrating with your t- – I mean, I just can't yeah. even believe that. So we're about to get our first dive computers this month. Uh, before that, it was sort of, well, you know, I think we'll be okay if we do this. Um, but if you want to go – it's exponentially more expensive and more difficult to get the technology from 60 feet-ish, which a lot of the commercial stuff will do pretty good, to 120, 150 feet. And it, I can see those guys right down there at the end of the line. It's not that far, really. And yet it is orders of magnitude more difficult. And and that's a, it's like the, the fuzz on the, you know, <laughs> the top of the pillow compared to where you guys are going. Oh, thousands of meters deep other than um exploration is there any other reason why we would normally go that deep with any of these vehicles or is it really pretty much scientific or i mean i suppose it could be in national defense just to make sure we've got this all mapped in our you know whatever areas are strategically important to us but why else would we go down that deep well, in some cases, it's really no different than, you know, why they put satellites up, right? The farther you get away, the more area we're Stranger Things. Out. We did satellites so we could watch Stranger Things at soccer <laughs> fields. That's why. But, you know, you look at, uh, you know, I worked a DARPA program years back. I probably got to be a little careful. But, you know, by yeah. putting something at 6,000 meters, uh, you know, acoustically, you can see out a very long way. You know, sure. there's, a, there's a basic cone that comes up from that. And the deeper you go... You know, when you're talking where right. things are operating that, you know, at the surface, that can be, a, you know, tens of miles of uh, of looking. Yeah. Well, somebody was we're going to we're going to flirt with conspiracy or or um, whatever you want to call it, espionage. Somebody was talking about there are channels in the in the Atlantic in particular where all of these sea cables run from the West, North America over to Europe. Um, whether it's Cornwall in England or Spain or um, Netherlands or whatever, this sort of this um, North Africa up into Europe space. And um, the conversation I was having with this group, just kind of toying with this idea, is if so much of that communication runs, the inelegant thing to do would be to cut something or to break something. So it would probably be important for us to monitor uh, some of these places, because there are there are shallower spaces where it's easier to get to this stuff than others. But um, but what might be more interesting is if could you attach a device to listen or to impact the integrity of the data that's coming across there. And I don't know enough, but what I would 
to know whether to call BS on that or not. But it just seems to me that these assets that are laying across the ocean, it might be important. It would be unrealistic to have ships and submarines all along that way. But if you could have devices that are monitoring and listening to what's going on in the world there, who's coming and going, what's down at depth, what's around these important um, areas, or who's near our shores or whatever, that, that that's another level of security and information um, that we might want to have. So maybe that's a, that's a reason why well, you would put... I mean, as much as, you know, we do have, you know, tremendous satellite capabilities and and you look at the amount of the world's data that goes through satellite it's you know it's a it's a single digit percentage right, right. the vast majority of all the data that moves around the world is is still on the subsea cables right um i'm gonna divert from talking about subsea cables because yeah. it's going to be very sensitive but I mean, yeah. you look at i mean it's it's an infra that that whole subsea infrastructure whether it's power cable you know gas lines anything it's it's incredibly hard to protect right um, you know it, it's you know look at you know you're looking at significant investments that put those in and just the span of where they are and it's you know it's really an impossible problem to to protect those you right. go back to um you know what was the um uh british petroleum uh, deep water horizon you know right. that took weeks to shut down it wasn't and it wasn't overly that deep right it right. wasn't you know, we have systems go much, much deeper than that. But the challenge of working to where that was and getting the systems out there capable of shutting that down and that, you know, clearly acts, you know, bad accident. But if, you know, if someone were to do something nefarious in that space, it's, you know, they can cost billions and billions and billions. Right. And not just monetary. I mean, if you're stopping traffic, um, if you're, if you're impeding or you're just tapping into, you know, you have an unfair advantage on, I mean, there's just so many vulnerabilities. We talk about this a lot. Um, there's an organization out there called the um, IEIC, which is the Internet Ecosystem Infrastructure Committee. And they talk about the same sort of idea, but up at the terrestrial um, router and f uh, above ground fiber uh, or non-ocean, non-satellite fiber infrastructure Similar ideas. We've been out. We've built this infrastructure. We believe the internet is this um, mesh, and to a certain degree, it is. But there are a dozen, two dozen major router points that, if they are compromised, uh, traffic is not moving around the globe in the way we imagine it will. It is a significant thing, and so a lot of the big hyperscale providers, social media, commerce, um, software as a service providers, all of their all this data, all this, you know, runs over these things. And so there's a lot of effort above ground to create these mesh intersections where we're not all going through, um, you know, somebody was talking to me the other day. Yeah, but there's three or four different carrier hotels. They're all in the same metro region. You take out, you take out the power, you, do, you interfere with that, or they're all, 80% of them are running on the same operating system. So around the globe. So if you compromise that operating system or if you compromise that geographic area, Northern Virginia, the largest data center market on earth, where the majority of the cloud, whatever infrastructure is, and these aren't state secrets, this is well known. Yep. But, but there, are, there are organizations out there now that are part of working with DARPA, working with state departments, working with global agencies. How do we minimize this risk? 
but I, I think what you were alluding to earlier is there's a lot of eyeballs on this, and it's apparent to all these people. Where you get into the ocean, maybe it's not as much attention, but it's just as valid a risk to make sure we're protecting these assets. But it's like running a cable across the middle of Siberia. Um, who, you know, government who controls that notwithstanding, how do you do that? It's a tremendously harsh environment that you just can't flip on your, you know, your skis and ski out there and go see what's going on. It's very difficult to manage. Yep. Um, let me ask you this. All of these technologies that we're talking about require energy. Yes. So I have a drone at home. Um, it is the funnest little thing. I got a couple extra battery packs. I love it. And I am shocked at not only how quickly does it drain that battery, just screwing around my yard and my cul-de-sac, but also when there's any sort of inclement weather, any any kind of thing, because it's got this great uh, little GPS hovering tool yep. or whatever, and I had uh, I had told it, look, just hover here for a moment. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of walk around the corner, and then when I come back, and then I'm gonna have it do something. And I can monitor my battery life. I could not believe how fast the battery had drained in that, I don't know, four minutes maybe. And the reason was, was at 50 feet, the wind was significantly different than where I was. And it was fighting against that. It took me a while to figure it out. I've got to believe with, when we're talking about something you said earlier, I think it was 800 times denser than air. And I don't have a tether to power. Mm -hmm. How are these rascals um how are we powering them how are we innovating to get them um to have any you know time uh, time on site or to do their mission what technologies are using and how are we innovating there so the the um you know you look at your drone it's probably i don't know how fast you've flown it but you've probably gotten up to maybe 30 40 knots it can, it can maybe speak. yeah yeah. yeah, I get scared. I have to go out to a big open field and where there's <laughs> nothing around to fly it like that. But so, yeah, probably right, some of like those that. things are going 100, right? I mean, they, oh, yeah, well, the big ones. This is yeah. this is the biggest you can get without a license. Yeah. I, I don't want to go mess around with that. So it's a good size and it's while it's light, it's really, really quick. I started yeah, not building uh, my COVID project was I started building some aerial drones. So I've been playing with those for the last couple of years. It's, they're a ton of fun. Yeah, but, they are. Um, you know, you're talking the weight of that and the bulk of the weight of that is the battery, right? Right. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and, but the, you know, that's got to carry the battery. It's got to get it up in the air and, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's turning those props pretty fast, high speed right. to, and burning through power. When you look at the, the undersea side, you know, torpedoes, huge amounts of power. Once you start talking speed underwater, you know, um, power draw goes up with the cube, I think of the speed. So it's just, I mean, it just takes a ton of power to go fast, but the good thing is, is it doesn't take a lot of power to go slow. Mm. And um, when you're looking at, you know, you can make really efficient vehicles that, you know, swim in a knot or two and, and don't take that much power. So, you, you, I mean, you're looking at vehicles that weigh hundred pounds and stay out for six months. Um, really? Why did they have, you know, low power sensors and depending right. on what your mission is, um, it just, it, there's a really sort of wide range of the parameters that you can play with, with what you're trying to do. There's some vehicles that, um, you know, you're talking surface vehicles. There's a lot of stuff out there with sails. Now there's a lot of stuff, solar, um, you know, there's a wave glider that, um, now Boeing owns that gets its, gets its whole propulsion from just, you know, wave action in the ocean. And even when it's not that, um, you know, wavy, the thing still moves around at about a half a knot. Yeah. Um, undersea, you know, the, the beauty of kind of undersea is, 
the vehicle, you know, you want to make it neutrally buoyant, right? You don't want it to, you know, eventually, you know, if it floats up, that's a good thing, but you don't want to use a lot of power to stay down. So you make it kind of neutral and that way, you know, you can, you know, you'll drift with the current. If you have high currents, you got to fight that, but you can stay out a long time. I mean, some of the sensors that are out there, you know, depending on what you're trying to do, take very, very little power. If you're talking active sonars, things like that, that starts to get up to tens or hundreds of watts sometimes. So you start burning through stuff fast, but there's a range of, you know, just, it really depends the mission you're trying to do and, and how you dial it in. Typically, you know, EOD guys, you know, eight hours, they're, they want to work a, you know, a day. So they'll, what's an EOD? Uh, I'm sorry, explosive ordnance uh, disposal guys. Okay. You know, they'll want to work for, you know, go out for a day. So their vehicles are they, you know, they try to optimize on a small vehicle they can carry around and run for about a day. Mm -hmm. um, when you start looking at, you know, vehicles that need to deploy off a submarine, those tend to have to work for multiple days because the submarine doesn't want to have to come back for it. Right. So it's just, you know, it's what are you trying to do? And, you know, what's the mission? How much data are you trying to collect? What kind of data are you trying to collect? How fast do you need it? It's, you know, there's right. so many different parameters that come into really optimizing what the designs are that you're trying to trying to put out. I'd heard that about submarines, that they have a bad attitude. I'm glad you confirmed that. They're like, I don't want to come back and pick you up. I'll, I'll <laughs> you better be back here at this stop in two days, bro, or we're leaving you. Do, now, do you, in innovation space, when you guys are working on vehicles like this, do you, to what are the parts of industry? We're talking about energy now. I'm thinking battery. But if you, if you, do you just reach out to the battery innovators and, and just look at what they have on the shelf, or is it, or, and you're working on pressurization and, um, for lack of a better word, slipperiness and propulsion systems and whatever, because there really isn't probably a lot of people that aren't tuning something specifically to your world in those spaces. Or, or do you also have teams, whether it's at Saab or just in, in the underwater industry in particular, that are, that are trying to also work on energy sources is it do you take it off the shelf or do you innovate in that space there's a lot of um undersea power development that's going on okay uh, battery you know you're not going to compete with battery for you know tesla and all the commercial you right. know above water stuff it's just the the demand is so high for you know new battery chemistries better energy densities so that's you know ultimately undersea follows what the rest of the market does and when somebody has a you know better Break through a better power density, energy density. We'll pull it in and package it as we as we can. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, you look at the Office of Naval Research and people like that, and there's a lot of funding that goes to, you know, undersea fuel cells, um, seawater batteries, you know, things that are really more niche applications, particularly for underwater, that um, could offer you know significant advantages over you know standard lithium battery and you know the you know that you have in your phone. Right. So when we were talking earlier, the beginning of the show, we were talking about, uh, and we've talked now about drones. I, I am imagining robots, in fact, not dissimilar to the picture that you showed us that are sturdy and strong and um, um, uh, can perform a variety of physical tasks. And then, of course, a drone has to be light and maneuverable and they're very fragile. Mine, as I've discovered the hard way, is very fragile. Um, when you're developing these underwater vehicles, how, how, what's the complexity there with fragility? Because um, the wind, while it can blow things around, unless it picks up an obstacle, an object, and throws it into the vehicle, 
um, which is which isn't very common, as opposed to I got to imagine in the ocean, there's a lot more not just the depth of pressure, but the forces of of um, of the ocean itself just moving the you know the um, the way that it's pushing this thing around. How how fragile is what's the comparison? I guess is what I'm trying to say to airborne or surface vehicles versus underwater vehicles. Are they that much sturdier or or not necessarily? Well, so the I mean, with air, you're trying to get every you know every gram of weight out of the craft because it'll right. it'll fly longer. So you do you know you are being driven toward a sort of a fragility of the of the structure and the platform. With underwater, at the end of the day, you need to displace the equivalent weight of water that you're you know you're taking up. So that actually gives you an advantage in that you know you can you can put a torpedo down there right a mm-hmm. one inch thick steel hull on some of these vehicles and granted you can't be too heavy or you'll be an anchor if you're too light you'll float to the surface but right. you know there's sort of a balance for the depth that you're going to and, and you can always offset with more energy if you can put more weight on you can put more battery on you know the the thing that i always you know i if we design a vehicle that has a lot of lead on it, that's in my opinion, that's a, that's a failed vehicle, right? You, right. you don't want to, you don't want to make the vehicle heavier with something that's not doing you anything, but sinking you. Right. Um, but there, you know, it's, it's a different trade space where it gets really sort of interesting is when you're talking, there's, there's a lot of systems out and I've worked on several where they're looking at hybrid systems that'll fly and swim. Right. And that that's, you know, whoa, what do we do here? We want to be that's really heavy underwater. We want to be really light in there. <laughs> and it's the, the challenge you get with those systems tends to be you come up with something that really doesn't work well in either environment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, you know, in this conversation, it reminds me of how remarkable human beings are that we can traverse so many of these environments. Um, you know, uh uh obviously you know, an orca or, uh, you know, some of the vehicle, the marine life we talked about before, they can't, they can't get up here on land and do anything. And, you know, uh, no matter what that, how powerful that polar bear is, it, it can't spend, um, can't go underwater and swim to depths. I see the deep water divers, the free divers of human beings. And, I, and I'm going to try to compare us to um, machines, but just this, this remarkable ability of ours to adapt to all of the surface conditions, to living in and around the oceans, um, it's it's a phenomenal uh, design. It just as we look at machines and the complexity of teaching them how to be smart and how to survive in these things, uh, I don't know. It it always puts me in awe of the human machine and its ability to learn and to understand and to cope and to navigate. So I don't know. We may edit that out, but I I'm just fascinated that we're able to do that. I'm really glad we have thumbs. <laughs> I'm really glad we have thumbs. Yeah, it would suck without thumbs. That would be, I completely agree. Um, where where are we at, do you think? Um, we've talked a little bit about navigation, but I'm wondering, um, before I move into a harder topic that I want to talk about, but it be, how is it that, when? how far away are we from teaching some of these machines to look around, you know, orient themselves and say, oh, okay, I recognize... You know, in space, it would be a constellation or it would be, a, um, you know, I've, I've got these fixed points of references. I've got star maps that I can draw from. Uh, we've already established the ocean. While mapped, it's not completely unknown, but there's more work to be done. How far until they, it can sort of orient itself and, you know, from sampling, 
here's the water temperature, here's the water pressure, so I must be at this depth. Here's, um, you know, here's the obstacles around me, here's the marine life around me, like whatever my inputs are, and I can make then a pretty good assessment, not o- only where am I on my X and Y axis, but in my position on this map, here's mm-hmm. where I'm at, and I can navigate without a lot of external communication, whether it's on a tether or acoustics or whatever, and I can course correct and continue on my mission or aboard or whatever I need to do, how how far are we on that track? So in the standard, you know, standard navigation for an undersea vehicle, you know, it, it has GPS when it's on the surface, right? So that resets where it is. And then once it dives, um, you know, and, you, you know, $100,000 navigation solution, which, right. you know, is, is reasonably cheap depending on what vehicle you're talking about. Right. Um, you know, something like that has a, what's called the Doppler velocity so what that does is it it negates the current. It tells you what your speed of, is over the bottom, depend, regardless of what the current's doing. It's it's looking at the bottom and it's tracking your position relative to that for you know x y speed. Right. Um, and then with the that combined with the inertial navigation system that's on the vehicle, that's all within that hundred k. Um, you know, a typical good undersea nav system is you know for every kilometer you go, you're off by a meter. Right. Mm. It's, you know, oh. and if you go two kilometers, two meters, three kilometers, but that, right. but for that to happen, you need to have, you need to be in a depth of water where your Doppler velocity log will see the bottom. So right. you know, that's typically, it could be 50 meters. It could be a couple hundred meters, depending on the sensor and, and what you have there. But the, there's a lot of other auxiliary navigation capabilities. So they have acoustic auxiliary where, you know, if there's a beacon close by that knows where it is, it can, sort of say, you know, my, your offset to me is this. And that's how a lot of deep water navigation systems work. The, the ship over the vehicle will say, I know exactly where I am acoustically. I know you're here within a sort of a circle mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll update your position so that you don't drift on your inertia nav. The, um, you, there's other systems now that are really starting to look at the, you know, if it's, you're getting sonar imagery, it's, you know, as you said, that future feature-based navigation where it's, mm-hmm. you know, it knows a rock is at this location and it sees the rock and it updates its position because the rocks where, you know, where it thinks it should be and where it is. Right. Um, the, the, it's just the challenge with undersea though, is it's just, it's a dynamic environment, right? So, right. You know, things like fishnets that, you know, monofilament fishnets come along and screw the vehicle up. And, you know, if the mm. sensor is not on the vehicle, they can see it. You know, there's just so many different risks out there. You know, currents change. You know, I've, I do, you know, I do a fair amount of boating off of Cape Cod. And, you know, I've, I've been where the chart tells me there should be 20 feet of water and it's been three feet of water because the, the sandbar shifted. Oh, so wow. There's a lot of that stuff that just, it happens. Yeah. When I was a kid, we lived in Marlboro, Mass. For two years, we moved out there from Southern California. Very different experience from so running into the in Worcester, Mass. Okay, well, um, they should have warned us. If you're from the West Coast and you're used to as cold as it is, running into the water at Long Beach in July, when you run into the water in July off of the Cape, <laughs> you're going to have a existential experience. <laughs> it's going to, I don't know how that water stays so cold, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I did most of my early scuba diving up north of Boston for years. Oh and goodness you know, gracious. Not uncommon to see. Well, it explains a little bit why you went into this business, you know, 
got a little brain damage. I want to work in something that's really hard. He, it's, um, a, it will be really interesting. I, I, I guess coming back to this, I'm continuously reminded how hard, not impossible, and it's an interesting challenge, but how hard working, not just in the ocean, the elements of erosion and the power of water um, moving things, probably, I don't know what the measurement is, but I, I, if I remember correctly, water will erode something much quicker than air alone will. You know, if air is picking up sand or some other medium to help erode, well, then it will erode sure, much quicker. Sure, it goes back to the density. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. But water is just relentless, right? It's just relentless. And then when you go under the water, it's just in a, you know, it's multiple factors of difficulty. Um, and so I'm constantly, as we have these conversations, reminded about how do, it's important to do it. Um, many of the things that we're looking for, whether it's materials or energy or whatever, live in the oceans or just discovery. You know, satellites are starting to tell us and have been for about a decade. Hey, look at this uh, this pattern. It looks like there's an infrastructure that looks like it's not natural off the coast of Italy. We should go investigate that. Maybe that was a civilization. So we're discovering these things and we're, we need the tools to go down and um, and to do that. Absolutely, hundred percent agree. As we're innovating, so and, and we can feel free to say, Dave, we're just going to move on from this conversation. But um, again, back to Dr. Wolpe, who specialized in ethics. He was one of the. He was a chief ethics officer. I think he's the first ethics officer for NASA, but certainly he's one of the chief ethics officer. And I was like, why do you need that for NASA? Like, like how do we treat our people? And he said, No. What happens if we discover a uh, a new life form, not necessarily a sentient, but a new life form somewhere. How do we do that? What if we need to train astronauts or what they call analog astronauts to go on a mission? How do we do that ethically? And he went through this whole big list. And then he said, um, and he's a teacher of ethics at Emory University here in Atlanta. And then he talked about biotech and the impact of biotech. We've touched just briefly on that here. But what should we experiment? How should we experiment? What are there cons consequences? And he's not for or against. Like he's a very optimistic mm -hmm. pro-tech guy, but he's like, we've really got to walk through these conversations. And I always, when I think about autonomous vehicles, the ability for a machine to make human-like decisions, especially when it's around other human beings, uh, you know, I, I somebody was telling me the premise for a book they were thinking about making or writing. I don't guess you make a book, you write a book. And it was, you know, in our naval warships, any naval warship, you've got all of these um, defenses against missiles coming through the water or through the air or aircraft or whatever, all these other things. And he said, what if you had something in my little scenario where you deploy a, like a UAV with a big payload and it gets to with, you know, very quietly, stealthily to within a certain range of whatever its target is. And the bay doors open, and it's like a scene out of Harry Potter. All of these little micro, uh, you know, um, UAVs, and they don't they don't shoot things at the ship. They just swarm the ship, and now they back to killer robots. You know, they they do all this other stuff, or a land based target, or whatever. And we talk about this when we talk about people with robots or artificial intelligence or whatever. Is there are there groups that are um, around the you know, I don't know how to phrase it. I don't know if it's the ethical behavior of these things, but how do we have 
these machines w- operate in a way with some oversight that we agree, whether it's Geneva Convention or whatever, is agree that human beings agree this is this is the realm of which they can operate in. This is a realm that we as civilized people, I'm putting quotes around civilized, we agree that they're not going to operate. Is that part of the conversation? I don't know if you're directly related to it, but it I'm is. curious if that comes up. No, it definitely is. And there's a lot of, um, you know, like industry um, uh, groups, uh, AUVSI is one of the larger autonomous vehicle uh, groups out there and they have an ethics board where they do studies and how do you really implement this we've been you know just in the year i've been with saab uh we've been involved in some uh you know transatlantic discussions on you know how do we you know the ethics of of what we're doing in robotics the biggest challenge from my view on any of that is you know the the people with the ethics aren't the ones you need to worry about that's right right. yeah i um there's a thing in the military, my audience have heard me, has heard me say this before, in the United States, when I was in the military, they taught us, look, here's the deal, You've your job is two things, troop welfare and mission accomplishment. We gotta accomplish the mission, you gotta take care of your troops. And we do that within these, broadly speaking, parameters, Uniform Code of Military Justice and the Geneva Convention. So I'm sure there's more complexity to that, but here's your, Here's what you're trying to do and how you're doing it. And here are your general boundaries. And then it can be more specific depending upon your role in the military and your mission and whatever. But these are the big ideas. Yep. And um, there are, you know, it'd be great. The big conversation in AI is the geopolitics of artificial intelligence. Not for our conversation today, but it's a conversation we're going to have at the show soon. Um, or even exploration um, in some areas, and not everybody subscribes to the thing. You know what happens if this? I'm not going to name a nation, but a particular nation says, "No, I'm not going to." You know, that's not how I'm going to use my AI. I'm going to use my AI to go do these things, even though the world says no. Well, then, what's our response to that? And that's a real thing that we need to be thinking yeah. through with these tools that can have godlike powers, but have no. They're just a tool, but there's there's no morality, but they have the ability to to perform in a way that's so quick and can be so devastating, and we got to think about it. What I am thinking about, though, is are you familiar with Martin Ford? He wrote a book called Rise of the Robots. A little bit. Okay. Well, he was on the show. He's a really interesting guy, well-known um, author, and one of his concerns is, and he also is an optimist, he's an engineer optimist, but he's like, look, here's here's how... Um, automation has impact is going to impact work, good or bad. It's going to impact work. Now, on the one hand, populations, in particular in the West and maybe some Asian countries, there's a lot more people plus fifty, cough cough me, than there are from for, f- forty to fifty. And there's a lot more people from forty to fifty than there are from thirty to forty. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. That to the degree that we can mechanize or automate and give intelligence to these specific fields where there aren't going to be enough people to do those jobs. In your world, we talk about um, uh, autonomous or unmanned uh, sea travel ships. I don't know that I'm thrilled with the idea of doing that on an airplane, but for some weird reason, I'm I have no trepidation about having, so long as there's redundancy, redundant tools operating the ferry from you know Sweden down to wherever, Denmark or across the channel or whatever. Like if there's a, a machine operating for me, 
I, I'm not afraid of that. I mean, I'm wondering, one, is there a, um, I don't know if Saab is, is working on something like this, like autonomous, accurate, in the same way that we're looking at autonomous surface vehicles to be safe. Mm -hmm. Maybe it displaces taxi drivers and Uber drivers, but the impact to human life and to safety and to efficiency is this exponential, really intriguing idea. Is there momentum in that in the maritime space? A ton, actually, because maritime, I mean, you look at, you know, it's a lot like, you know, airplane travel, right? The the only thing the pilots really do are take off and land, right? And, right. And when you're looking at the amount of time it takes a ship to travel across the Atlantic, there's, you know, there's strong arguments that don't, those ships don't need to be manned, right. you know, send a pilot out when he gets a mile offshore and take it in from there. And uh, right. it's, you know, and I mean there's so few things that you know a human does better than a machine you know and with all the right parameters right, right. If, if it's all modeled out you know machines right. can do it do it repeatedly way better than any human the, right. the problem goes to like the edge cases where you know oh the machine wasn't trained to recognize that right, right. It's the it's the what's I don't know what I'm looking at. You know, right. I can interpret it to be something that's totally not. There was a, I saw a cool video on YouTube where a Tesla was following a utility truck that had like three stoplights in the back of the utility truck. Right. And the Tesla was smart enough to know what the stoplights were, but it couldn't figure out why there'd be three of them in a utility truck. So it, it, it's autonomy of the way that the machine interpreted it. It, it turned the utility truck into like a stoplight launcher. <laughs> it was a really cool video and it was just it was one of those edge cases where it's like how you know it's amazing that it recognized the the utility truck and the stoplights for what right. they both were and put them together and it was but it's like it doesn't know what to do with that once it's together right i'm fascinated with it i i really look forward to seeing tools like this um deployed in a way that um, just helps human beings flourish. Like, I, I, I don't know what the, you know, in the, in the States right now, probably um, the closest to this is, is the promise of autonomous long haul trucking. Mm -hmm. So we've had a guy who spent a lot of time at Kroger in the uh, supply chain logistics space. He's now worked for a different organization, same idea. And he said, kind of like agriculture and farming, we're not, um, we're not trying to displace drivers, truck drivers, or, or facilitate long-haul trucking because we have something against humans, it's cheaper, whatever. We just don't have enough people for the jobs by an order of magnitude for a variety of reasons. People aren't signing up to go do that. That was a very common job uh, for men of a certain age and a certain demographic, at least in the United States, it was well-paying. You could do all these other things. It was very popular. Well, it's popularity, just like being a farmer. Most, most farms, I learned in writing an article, uh, I think it was in Forbes, um, are still small farms, in spite of what I was told. They're not big corporate farms. But none of their children want to be farmers. And they're in this crunch because they need the technology, they need robotics, they need all these other things, but they don't really have the bandwidth necessary to get them out there and have them operate in an autonomous way. So so that's a thing that they're working on. But anyway, the, the point there is in these two worlds, they just don't have enough people. And so they need tools to stand in the gap to make this happen. And this guy was proposing maybe with trucking, 
not in the distribution, but from warehouse to warehouse, whether that's special lanes or we'll work it out. We're going to figure out how to do that. Just like when we built airplanes, we had to then begin airports and air traffic control and all these other things. We're going to build, build the infrastructure so that these things can work between hubs. And then from the hubs, at least in the near term, will be people doing that final distribution between these complexities. And with maybe with maritime, from harbor to harbor, you know, purpose-built or certain types of harbors in certain areas, the ships are just running back and forth. And maybe they have a, um, a captain or two with all of these symptom, uh, systems instead of an entire army of people. But, but it just feels like it'll be much more efficient. It will be much safer, believe it or not, in the, except for on the margins, as you described, which are so rare. You know, mm -hmm. we, we don't have pilots training every day like Sully did for a double bird strike over Manhattan. That's almost never happened before, right? So we don't train for that um, every day. So anyway, I'm just curious on, you know, how you feel about it and uh, from a commercial perspective, and how soon do you think it's going to be a real thing, uh, whatever that looks like? Well, I mean, you touched on it earlier. I think you talked about the the dirty and the dangerous, but it's it's really the dull, dirty, and dangerous, right? That's and right, the dull. The dirty, that's right. I forgot that. Yeah, <laughs> and it's the and the dull is that that repetitive stuff that you know it just you know it's not a great job for anybody to do, and it's not you know right. they just every day you know it's boring. You know, there's 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 better jobs to, you know, to do. And that's a great job for automation. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I think it's coming. And I, you know, my sort of the concern, I guess I have at the end of the day is the technology is advancing a whole lot faster than I think we're really able to manage it and control it. And, you know, and to back to your point on the ethics to sort of put the right rules around it, right? Everybody's right. like, Hey, I think I can do this. I think I can do this. I think I can do this. And before you know it, we're, you know, we're, pushing some boundaries. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's, um, you know, back to when we invented the airplane, we invented the airplane crash. I've said that before. And it took us a while to figure out, you know, maybe we shouldn't smoke in the cabin. Um, maybe we should have seat belts. How do we, you know, planes don't fall out of the sky very often anymore, unless somebody's either trying to do it or five systems have failed before flight, during flight, um, and in the planning of the flight. So a whole bunch of things have to go wrong. And so we've created systems globally around that. One of the the great things with technology, I'm sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. You know, I, I think, you know, with the exception of sort of the 737 MAX, which was a technology issue that shouldn't right. have happened. You know, you look at a lot of the the last you know, the, the really bad crashes, there's a bad one in China went straight in. You look even at Malaysia, they think, you know, a lot of it is it's human deliberate. Yeah. It's, it's people. Yeah. You know, and you, and you can't, you know, if the machine was there, it wouldn't happen. Right. Yes, I agree. And it's um, almost without exception in all of these things, it is the human being nefarious or exhausted or whatever it is, human, human error, um, at the same time, I don't know that anybody's still real. I, I know you fly a lot more than me. I used to do about 45 or 50 domestic trips a year. Thankfully that's down to maybe half a dozen to a dozen. Every time I try to reach you, you're traveling somewhere. Uh, yeah, so you I'm, travel. I'm easily a hundred plus a year. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> some crazy. Of that's, some of that's international. Yeah. That's crazy. So, but, but still for most of the population, we are not yet there where 
there's no cockpit. We just get in and the system's going even with three computers on board. Although the dirty little secret is, is I was talking to somebody about modern aircraft, even modern small aircraft. They push a button. That thing can take it off. It'll fly it. It can land it. It can taxi it. it can, there's so many amazing tools out there that are available, redundant, whether they have external communication or not, all built within the system. And so that's just more of a cultural thing that we are accustomed to. Many trains run with very, you know, they have a conductor who's, no disrespect to conductors, half asleep as they run on these systems because they're all fully automated. Um, and they're arguably much, much safer than they used to be. But it is that thing where, the, I think the difference between previous technologies and this is it can it can advance so quickly um, that it can almost be, uh, not to be too provocative, but it can almost be weaponized. So this commercial thing can almost be used, you know, if uh, with an organization, um, small cell or larger cell in a way that, it, you know, we need to make sure that we're putting safeguards so that somebody could not just to the degree that we're willing to accept the risk. We harden cockpits and airplanes now, right? We didn't do that before. You could you could go up and tour the cockpit on some of the larger planes with the pilot, and you know when an event happens as tragic as it is, we we then take countermeasures to uh, to do that. But we're not going to stop technology. We're not going to stop progress. Yeah. Yep. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. What haven't we talked about that we should have? I feel like I've <laughs> put you through your paces. We covered, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> oh, there's one thing that I wanted to uh, mention that I think is awesome. I know we're pretty much out of time, but um, how about that discovery of Shackleton's ship? And if I'm not mistaken, with Saab uh, tools as part of it. It was uh, two Saab uh, saber-tooth vehicles is what they're called. They're, um, they're actually a hybrid uh, AUV ROV, so they can have power on them and operate autonomously, or they can have a, have a uh, thin fiber tether and be controlled. So in the state that they – so it was an under-ice operation, and it was right. in a very challenging environment. So yeah, they – The um, Antarctic. They them, yep. They yeah. operated them on the tether, and they um, – you know, there had been a, a mission, I think, four or five years prior to that, where there's still a missing $5 million UV down in that neck of the woods. But, um, you know, we put out two, we got two back and we found the target. So we're really happy. It, for people, not to put you on this, but I know you're not a history expert. When I um, was preparing for this conversation, I had heard about the discovery, but I really didn't, I thought more about the discovery than I did the tech. And mm -hmm. then I later learned about this um, you know, well, what tools did they use? And then what's a saber tooth? And that's how I've, I, I kind of ended up there and realizing that we had this cool correlation. But the story of this, I'd never heard of him before, or really this story. He's one of the most remarkable figures, exploring figures in human history, much less. Um, oh, what he did to, to save his crew is just, you know, it's a remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, so for people, if you've got 90 seconds, for people who aren't particularly familiar with the story, what's the 90-second view? You didn't know you are going to put it on the spot, so if you screw this up, I'll edit it out, but don't. <laughs> so I am not a history guy, and I haven't read the books that I should for some of this, but uh, you know, he was an Antarctic explorer. Yep. He got caught in the ice with his crew, um, brand new, beautiful ship, all wooden, um, and uh, just it got trapped. It got uh, you know ice-bound. Um, I don't know after how many months, but I think uh, it was eight said, months, seven or eight months. They were on that thing waiting for the ice to open. And he, so he ended up, you know, going off to go lead a rescue to get to George's Island and get people to come back for him. And then the ship, um, 
uh, broke apart during the ice movement and right. sunk. Right. I mean, you see the the pictures that came up. I mean, it's the the ships in six uh, three hundred or three. I'm sorry, three thousand meters of water, right. um, which is below where like wood bores and things like that are. So it's right. it's in pristine condition, with the exception of some obviously right. from the ice and right. been down there a hundred years. But um, just remarkable how you know how the water clarity, the how well preserved the ship was, and you know just the stability of the vehicles. Taking the pictures they did, it was really you know we couldn't ask for a better you know, marketing opportunity yeah. than, than finding that. And, um, you know, it was one of the last, you know, great wrecks that were out there that needed to be, to be found. It was so beautiful in that the picture as they, as they come up on the ship, it, it's almost emotional to think about when you know that, learn more about the story. So I encourage everybody to go, I think his name is Ernst Shackelford, something Ernest like Shackleford. that. Ernest Shackleford, yeah. They come up and the back of the boat, its name, if I remember correctly, is Endurance. And I thought, how appropriate and interesting is it that, first of all, they kept them alive on the ice flow for those eight months with all that pressure. Eventually, it starts breaking. And, and so they had however many hours to or days to get off and get as much as they could. It sinks. And when they discover it, it's sitting there in this beautiful, restored, and as I recall the story, I'm they can look it up. I'm sure they'll. There are more details that I'm missing. But he led them off of the ice, like a year or whatever it was, off of the ice, um, hoping that they could find this other station. They couldn't. So he leaves them on the shore. And he's like, "Look, I I'm coming back." And it, him and two other guys. And by the way, these guys are malnourished. They've eaten all their dogs. They are hunting along the way to the best of their ability. And these guys never stop trusting him. And he's in his 40s, which to me feels like a kid now. <laughs> and um, and then he and a couple other guys sail in this little bitty dinghy, basically, across the, the sea there to this freaking island and show up emaciated, conv recover, convince the crew there to send a ship back. And he rescues every single member of that crew it, it's um, yeah, it's it's remarkable. It's a remarkable story, and then and then your tools get to come along, and it's such a cool. The discovery is such a cool story of the people that persevere to find this thing, and then to have at the right time at the right place the tools that Saab was able to help them, you know, provide with to go find this, and the people from the reporters to the engineers are just. It's almost a solemn moment, you know. It's uh, you just get there and you see this thing. And it's just a remarkable story. So it's a cool way for us, I think, to end the conversation with the way the technology has helped play that. And this is a beautiful way that these technologies not only help guard our interest and do discovery and whatever, but also help us to discover the world around us and tell stories like this. Yeah. Cool beans. Well, Jeff... Thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to come out. And um, if people want to learn more about the programs you're up to, where do they find that? Um, so Saab actually has a great uh, amount of media out. Uh, YouTube, a lot of videos and the products we have. But uh, Saab.com gets you to a lot of the different things we do. Exciting times. Perfect. Jeff Smith, thank you very much for joining us on the QTS Experience. Thank you very much, David. Enjoyed it. All right. Have a good one. And if you've enjoyed the show, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. And we'll see you next time with QTS Experience. See you, everybody.